everyone, and welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. He's back. We've got him. The second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki, is on the line. Episode 152. We're talking about vitamin D. It's been Perhaps a little while, man. It has been a little while. This is, uh, this is very exciting for me. I just, <laughs> you've just been out here on my lonesome recording <laughs> podcasts, talking into the abyss. Yeah. And now you're back. Yeah. Here I am. And you just you just decided to pick like the second or third most polarizing topic in micronutrient medicine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll save the one on multivitamins and like omega three fatty acids for for a later date. But vitamin D is definitely up there. It's provocative and gets the people going, right? You know, this is timely because I had gotten tagged, you know, in in a post on Instagram by a uh, medical professional who was effectively saying that you know, vitamin D and multivitamins were very useful potentially for, because people don't get enough of them in their diet. And I'm like, okay, that is a claim that can be tested as a hypothesis that can be tested. So like, where, where's your evidence, you know? And there, no evidence was provided. It was just a back and forth. And I was like, if there's so much, if you feel so strongly about this, you're so confident in these claims, like you should have overwhelming evidence. And it should be relatively easy to provide that evidence that taking a multivitamin or taking a vitamin D supplementation in, you know, various populations that you're claiming a benefit in that, that there, there's actually a beneficial outcome. So, and if you're not saying that, then what's this post about? Yeah, this is just the standard, uh, method of, of discourse. It seems like in a lot of circles where if you can tell a plausible sounding story, a plausible narrative, then people will tend to eat it up. You know, I mean, we saw this same thing, like we joke about when, um, uh, Gary Taubes went up with uh, Stephen Guillenay on that debate podcast, and one of them <laughs> was, quote, telling stories, and the other one was just like laying out all this evidence. And people respond, they like stories, they like narratives. Um, even our friends yeah. on the Sigma podcast are recently doing their like quack segment on uh, the, the carnivore guy and how he just like tells a lot of stories that sound compelling to people. And, you know, unless you poke at it a little bit more and look for what's this actually based on, um, then you're kind of wasting your time. <laughs> Yeah, the emotional appeal to them, like the emotional argument kind of thing. Um, yeah, and, and I think when we talk about today, uh, today's topic, vitamin D and, and you know, what it is, what it does, the outcomes in medical and fitness sort of uh, uh, setting and, and then what our recommendations are, you know, the, the assumption, the reason why this is even a hot topic uh, is because the thought is that if you have low vitamin D levels, that correcting them via supplementation is going to improve whatever outcome you're measuring. Uh, and then one step further is that if you take vitamin D supplements to re that'll reduce the risk of developing a vitamin D deficiency and therefore prevent, you know, or reduce the risk of you developing, um, these sort of, uh, unwanted outcomes. So that's like the baseline assumption. And so we're going to poke some holes in that and, uh, hopefully you, the listener, uh, find this beneficial. So uh, again, welcome to the Barbell Medicine podcast. Really appreciate all of our OG listeners who have, uh, been with us from the start. If this is your first Barbell Medicine podcast, welcome. Um, we got a lot of information in the other 151 podcasts, so would recommend checking those out if uh, you know you, you need to binge something. So, Doctor B, Doctor Baraki, let's uh, get the listeners at home up to speed on what vitamin D actually is. So, like, what does it mean to be a vitamin, and what does it mean to be vitamin D? 
Yeah, there are uh, a whole lot of different vitamins that exert tons of different, you know, effects in the body. Vitamin D is one in particular that falls in the category of what are called fat soluble vitamins. Now, a vitamin is a sort of a, a compound, an organic compound that our body can't make. And so we have it's uh, something that we have to get from an outside source. Um, although there's some caveats to that in, in the discussion around vitamin D that, that we'll get to. But uh, vitamins are either they tend to dissolve better in water, in which case we can eat them or, or drink them in our, in our food sources, and they end up getting absorbed and dissolve into our blood. And if we take in too much for some reason, then they're just freely, you know, peed out. Not, not a big deal. Uh, the fat-soluble ones, which are vitamins A, D, E, and K, we're going to focus on vitamin D today, are the, the fat-soluble ones. These don't tend to dissolve in water. So when we consume them, they need to get carried around in the blood on a carrier protein, a vehicle, because they can't dissolve in our water-based bloodstream. And additionally, because we have body fat, um, uh, these vitamins can be distributed into that body fat and uh, we can end up basically with like a, a longer term storage forms of these fat soluble vitamins, whereas the, the water soluble ones excess just gets kind of peed out. The, the, the fat soluble ones can actually accumulate and be stored in our bodies for, for longer periods of time. Yeah, because they can be stored, there is a higher potential for toxicity. That's kind of like the name of the game when it comes to fat soluble versus water soluble um, but it's interesting that they, we call vitamin D a vitamin in the first place, because in general, you, you can't, the definition of a vitamin is you can't actually make it, but, uh, you know, we can make vitamin D as it turns, as it turns out. Um, so the body's able to synthesize it and it does tend to also function more like a hormone, like particularly a steroid hormone, because it binds, uh, uh it acts at, at the level of the nucleus at the inside of a cell. So when you say vitamin D, everyone know, you know, knows or has heard about what it is, but as far as it being strictly a vitamin, um, eh, nah, probably probably not the greatest definition. I, I don't know the history of like why do they name it vitamin D, uh, you know? And then we didn't further, take that far down in our uh, pre in our prep here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like the you know, like why did they? What would they have called it instead? Like substance D, <laughs> <laughs> bio substance D, or yeah. I don't know. So uh, in any case, the way vitamin D works. Um, so you, you've made this active version of vitamin D and, uh, Dr. Baraki is going to talk about how we actually uh, make vitamin D either from ingesting some precursor vitamin D, uh, in food and, and, and another sort of uh, dietary elements or if making it from uh, sunlight. But once, uh, we convert it a few times to this active, uh, form of vitamin D, it binds the vitamin D receptor on the cell and that triggers a bunch of downstream processes. So for example, it increases calcium and phosphorus absorption in the intestines. That's one of the functions at the level of the gut, uh, increases bone mineralization, which is a fancy way of saying making stronger, bigger bones. Um, and also, uh, is involved in immune function, um, certain genetic effects. And honestly, there are thousands of likely other functions that vitamin D does. It's just a ubiquitous sort of uh, acting hormone that you name an organ system, vitamin D does something to it, which is one of the reasons why we see all of these relationships between vitamin D status and various sort of, you know, health, health outcomes, um, because it does act at all these different tissues and all these different systems. And so, yeah, having uh, a poorly acting vitamin D receptor or having very low vitamin D levels can be a problem. And uh, we're going to kind of flesh that out in the rest of this podcast. But first, let's talk about how we make vitamin D because there's a bunch of different types of vitamin D. And I think, again, when you this level of complexity can make people's eyes glaze over. So let's see if we can simplify it and, and get people on the same page. 
Yeah, it is quite complex, but there's a couple aspects of this that are worth knowing because it has implications for like, you know, when we go to check our blood tests, uh, uh, what that means and what we're, what exactly we're measuring. So there are two forms of vitamin D. You may have seen supplements that have like a D3 that is known as cholecalciferol and there's D2 that's known as ergocalciferol. Uh, vitamin D is kind of, you can think of it more as like the, the human slash animal produced form of vitamin D. Uh, whereas ergocalciferol D2 is found in some, some plant sources um, and elsewhere. So the, the underlying idea here is that these are inactive forms of vitamin D and they require two sequential steps to be fully activated. The first step happens in the liver and that results, that, uh, results in something called calcidiol, which is also known as 25-hydroxyvitamin D. That's a, that's a big, long, fancy name, but that one is particularly important because it has the longest half-life in the blood. It hangs around the blood for like two to three weeks um, at a time. And because it hangs around for the longest, it serves as our best kind of storage source, uh, storage form of vitamin D. And as a result of that, that's actually what you're measuring when you go and you get your vitamin D levels checked is this calcidiol, this 25 hydroxy vitamin D. Not the same thing as what you've taken over the counter um, as a supplement or what you've gotten in your food, but uh, what happens when that source ends up going through and gets the first activation step in the liver. After that, uh, if it is going to become fully activated, it has to go through a step in your kidney to make something called calcitriol. This is like the biologically active form. It exerts the effects that you were describing, going and binding the receptor um, uh, in, this, in the cell and, and doing all those downstream actions. Um, this one only hangs around for a few hours, somewhere like five to eight hours. And so it's, it's real transient and it's the biologically active form. This is actually not what we measure. Um, and so there are these three different forms that are kind of important to understand the differences between so we know what we're measuring when we get a blood test on this. And then the last important piece of this is that, again, as a reminder, these are not the, these, uh, these vitamins do not uh, dissolve in water. They have to be carried around our blood on carrier proteins as a result. So all forms of vitamin D uh, and its metabolites circulate in a state that is bound to something called vitamin D binding protein. Um, and this protein uh, serves, again, as kind of like a storage site, a reservoir for all this vitamin D that can then be released and activated to exert its effects on cells and tissues in the body. So the amount of vitamin D binding protein uh, in our blood is regulated by a whole bunch of different things. And it can be altered by things like inflammation, um, like if you get sick, if you get an infection by cortisol or glucocorticoids, these kind of inflammatory hormones, stress hormones that our bodies uh, can produce in various situations. It can be altered by estrogen, um, which is influenced itself by a bunch of different things, kidney disease, liver disease, um, et cetera. And so these, the amount of binding proteins that we have around themselves have an important role in regulating how much vitamin D is in our blood. And in the overwhelming majority of discussions on vitamin D that you will see, hear, read, uh, discussions of vitamin D binding protein don't really tend to come up very much. It's not a well-recognized or well-appreciated aspect of this conversation, even though it's super important. Um, and we'll come back to why in a little bit. And, and just to illustrate why this, uh, this matters, there's some interesting uh, findings in some genetic studies. So I'll mention one that comes from animals and one that comes from humans. So um, in, in one uh, study, there was uh, some mice that were had a genetic knockout of the vitamin D binding protein, meaning that they actually didn't express the vitamin D binding protein. As a result, since they didn't have this carrier around, they had essentially undetectable levels of 
25-hydroxy vitamin D in the blood. Um, but they had no evidence of actually any consequences of vitamin D deficiency when they were consuming a regular diet. Once they were put on a very low vitamin D diet, they developed some issues. Um, however, when they were consuming a regular diet, you know, they were able to have enough vitamin D coming in and doing its thing. Um, they just lacked kind of the backup, the storage form that circulates around. So this is a situation where if you measured the blood vitamin D levels, you'd say, oh my God, this is like a raging deficiency when in reality, there was no actual evidence of, you know, clinical problems, symptoms, diseases arising from that low blood level. Um, and there's the same finding that's been found in uh, some humans where there was a, a human family that was found to have a genetic mutation that actually deleted their their uh, vitamin D binding protein. So they also had nearly undetectable levels of vitamin D in the blood. And similarly, they had essentially normal physiology, no disease state, no issues as long as they were consuming a normal diet. The consequence was just they didn't have this like long-term backup form circulating around in the blood. Uh, but they, even though they had essentially undetectable levels, there was no apparent consequences of that. So this just, again, is intended to, to make people think a little bit harder about what do these levels mean? What are we actually measuring? What do, we, what do they mean? What's the significance of them? Um, is it the case that every time I measure a blood 25 hydroxy vitamin D level and it's low, is that always a problem that needs to be fixed? Well, it's like there's a lot that goes into what that level is, what that means, and, and whether I should care about it or do something about it. Yeah. Similar to other things we've addressed on a podcast, you know, the take home is, yeah, you, it may be appropriate in some instances to do labs, you know, quote unquote, do labs and get a, get a measurement in this particular case, uh, of vitamin D, uh, the long-term storage form in the blood. Uh, but that's probably can only be interpreted through a clinical perspective. So what are the symptoms associated with this? Why am I getting this lab in the first place? Not just like, yeah, I'm going to get it because, you know, it's only whatever, 20 bucks. And I, I just want to know. It's like, well, yeah, right. <laughs> do you? what does it mean in that case? Yeah. Um, before we get too much further down the rabbit hole, uh, we've kind of alluded to where vitamin D comes from. We'll talk about that a little bit more in detail. So you can get vitamin D uh, primarily from two uh, major sources. One is sunlight, one is food. So the sunlight derived vitamin D uh, and the food derived vitamin D all go, they end up going through the same final common pathway, which is they, once they're in the bloodstream, it's, it's in active forms, they end up getting converted by the liver to this precursor uh, model that we, uh, the precursor molecule that we actually measure for that long-term storage sort of vitamin D. Uh, and then later it goes on to the kidney, gets converted again to this biologically active form of vitamin D. That's the final common pathway. From the sun, effectively your skin uh, uh, takes these UVB rays and uh, once that interacts with cholesterol and a few other different enzymatic reactions, boom, you get this precursor molecule of vitamin D. Um, the skin actually regulates its own level of production of this inactive form of vitamin D, so it's a really low risk of overproducing it. So you'd have to like be outside all day because uh, the time, the duration of exposure to the sun uh, kind of influences how much vitamin D you can make. Um, also, how much skin is exposed to the sun um, influences how much vitamin D you make. Uh, also, the latitude, so how close you are to the equator. Uh, the environmental conditions, is it cloudy, uh, the season, um, all sorts of stuff, the skin type. So people with more fair uh, sort of uh, skin tend to produce more vitamin D than darker skin types. There's actually a whole uh, like scale of different types of skin um, called skin type factor that we actually use to calculate the vitamin D dose. When I say we, I mean actual smart people doing research on vitamin <laughs> D. <laughs> Your doctor is not going to calculate the vitamin D dose you get. Um, but the real take home from this is that, yeah, 
you can produce vitamin D from uh, sunlight, obviously. But the problem is the most in most industrialized uh, countries, most people work indoors. And so, for, for example, for example, in uh, the United States, but 95% of our workforce is indoors. Uh, they're not going outside enough uh, at all, all year to get an adequate amount of sun exposure to make the recommended amount of uh, vitamin D, which uh, vitamin D3 in particular, which is about 600 to 800 IUs per day. If you work outdoors near the equator and you have a substantial amount of your skin exposed to the sun, you could do that. Uh, but then there's uh, this sort of risk of uh, skin cancer. You know, so there's, and that's a more complex discussion that's going to require its own podcast, sort of the, in, the interaction between sun exposure and skin cancer and how, uh, how that relates to, uh, vitamin D levels. But I think when we get to the end of this podcast, you'll understand that vitamin D levels, we shouldn't be chasing vitamin D levels, uh, just, you know, uh, indiscriminately, for example. Um, but yeah, if theoretically, again, you're an outdoorsy working, uh, uh, American, you can make a bunch of vitamin D. Uh, and it's really hard to make too much, almost impossible, because the skin regulates its own vitamin D production, um, unless you go to tanning beds, because tanning beds tend to uh, overwhelm the skin's ability to self-regulate vitamin D production. So you could actually get vitamin D toxicity from too much tanning beds, uh, which you, we all saw on Jersey Shore. That's actually <laughs> what happens when you you overdose uh, on the tanning beds. Um, then second major sort of source of vitamin D is going to be from foods. So the intake recommendations we give for certain minerals um, are termed the recommended dietary allowance or RDA, which basically is the average daily level of intake that's necessary to meet the nutrient requirements of about 98% of individuals. There are age specific recommendations. Um, so for example, for infants zero to 12 months, it's 400 IUs international units per day. And then once you get up to the adult range, it's uh, about 600 IUs per day until you get into uh, individuals over the age of 70, which is 800 IUs international units per day. Um, this is controversial and it varies by professional organization and different uh, locations, different countries will have different recommendations. Um, and I think a big source of the controversy is that we still are trying to learn the difference between correlational data on vitamin D and like different health outcomes, and then what it means to actually replace vitamin D and its subsequent effect on outcomes. Because there's a there's a difference there. We can we'll as we'll see, there are a bunch of correlations between low vitamin D levels and disease. But the actual evidence for treating those low vitamin D levels with supplemental vitamin D or increasing dietary intake of vitamin D is much less clear. So uh, we'll get into that here and why that's the case. But in foods, uh, there are a few natural foods. When I say natural, I just mean non-fortified foods. It doesn't mean that they're any healthier. It's just they already have a bunch of vitamin D in them. So fatty fish like trout, salmon, tuna, mackerel, you can get about 70 to 80% of your daily values of vitamin D in a single serving. Also mushrooms and mushroom powder. Also shout out to mushroom powder that's been treated with UV light. Because if you apparently if you shine UV light on it, it increases the uh, bioavailable vitamin D levels. That's so cool. one serving, yeah, one serving is about fifty uh, percent of your daily value of vitamin D. That's why I got a grow operation here, just uh, growing <laughs> a bunch of fungus here. Um, and again, since there aren't many foods that actually do have a lot of vitamin D uh, in them occurring naturally, uh, most uh, or a lot of food, particularly in developed countries, are fortified. 
And there are fortification guidelines. I've actually linked those in the description below. You can see like for various different foods, what are the fortification guidelines uh, for each food stuff, but things like milk, milk alternatives, cereals, juices, yogurt, infant formula, all have vitamin D added to them in order to increase dietary intake of vitamin D. Uh, and again, this is under the idea that like if we bump up vitamin D intake, we'll prevent vitamin D deficiency related sort of diseases. And on, on a population level, you know, that may not be a bad idea, but when it comes down to very specific diseases, uh, we might not see that same relationship. The last part, obviously, people uh, are listening to this podcast, are interested in maximizing their performance and their health trajectory. And so supplements tends to be a uh, something that people are interested in. So you can take uh, vitamin D supplements. They usually come in two flavors, vitamin D2, which again is that ergo cocalciferol that's from uh, mushrooms, plant, plant-based, and then vitamin D3. Uh, is the other type of supplement. We'll talk about specific recommendations for supplementation later, but those are the three major uh, places that people get vitamin D. So again, sunlight, food, and supplements. All right, so after that long preface about what vitamin D is, where we get it from, um, and kind of how it works in the body, let's get into the meat and potatoes of this podcast, talk about what vitamin D's relationship is with certain health outcomes. So uh, probably the most well-studied has to do with bone health, quote-unquote. Like, that's probably where this started. Austin, you want to take people through kind of the origin story of vitamin D and why we care about it? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is best illustrated by what happens when there is severe, prolonged vitamin D deficiency. And this manifests in uh, conditions known as rickets in children, where you see weakening and and bowing of the, the bones, just Google image uh, rickets, you'll see what that looks like. And the more adult form um, of this bone related uh, complication of severe prolonged vitamin D deficiency is known as osteomalacia. And again, you mentioned earlier the idea that vitamin D plays a role in bone mineralization, having to do with actually kind of consolidating the the uh, the bone with the minerals needed to, to give it its maximum strength. And so when that process is impaired, you end up with these kind of like softer, quote unquote, weaker, quote unquote, bones. Um, again, rickets in children, osteomalacia in adults. And that's kind of the best, you know, most well-known uh, complication of severe prolonged vitamin D deficiency as it relates to bone health. But as we said earlier, uh, because vitamin D plays a role in uh, so many different functions in the body, um, it's been looked at for almost everything you can possibly think of. <laughs> and sure enough, when we go looking for things, we, t we tend to find things as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, basically, if there's a disease, you know, or organ system that, uh, that we've identified, we've looked at vitamin D's relationship with it. Uh, so we're going to talk about some of the heavy hitters here. But one thing that we need to talk about is how vitamin D levels change in response to uh, disease in general. And I, Austin, I think because you probably explain this or similar relationships when you see folks in the hospital, you probably explain them to your residents. We talk about negative acute phase reactants and like just, yeah, what, so what is that? And like, how does that pertain to vitamin D? Yeah. So uh, like we said, that there's tons of uh, epidemiological evidence or observational evidence that links vitamin D insufficiency or vitamin D deficiency with lots of poor health outcomes. So you can go and Google vitamin D and like whatever health condition you want. It could be uh, some infectious thing like currently, you know, it could be COVID, it could be autoimmune conditions, heart disease, cancer, you know, neurological conditions, whatever you want. And you're going to find papers showing relationships. And uh, this is again, going to be one of the hopefully big take homes from uh, this podcast is the difference between these kind of observational studies and correlations, which are all over the place. 
and how that differs from intervention evidence when you actually go and you treat that uh, uh, that number. Does it actually help the person? Does it uh, help them live longer, live better, uh, or prevent the development of, of any of these conditions? And so you mentioned this concept of this negative acute phase reactant. That's a real fancy phrase, but it, it's something that describes um, a situation where something in the blood decreases uh, in the face of some kind of significant illness or inflammation going on in the body. So we see this with all kinds of markers in the blood. When I see somebody who comes in, say, with sepsis, like they have an infection and they have, uh, you know, a, a, a big systemic response to that infection, some things are going to go up as a result of that infection and other things actually are going to go down. Um, as a result of that infection. Uh, and so this is related to a whole bunch of different factors. And so we actually see with vitamin D that it tends to be one of those things that goes down in the face of significant illness, disease, significant inflammation going on in the body. This is probably related to a whole bunch of different things, uh, uh, including effects on production and effects on utilization, including effects on the vitamin D binding protein that I emphasized the importance of earlier and how, you know, its affinity, how, how tightly it wants to bind vitamin D and, and a bunch of other things. So there have been a bunch of different kind of ways that this has been looked at, even in people who are healthy at baseline, who have no you know issues going on, no inflammation, no disease states, and they go and they get like an elective surgery done. And after the surgery gets done, suddenly vitamin D levels tank. Uh, and other in other situations, you know, looking at C-reactive protein, that's a blood marker of inflammation. When that C-reactive protein level has been higher as a marker of a lot of inflammation going on, vitamin D levels correlate, you know, uh, uh, in the other direction with that. They tend to be lower. Um, and so there's lots and lots and lots of evidence, both, you know, research evidence and you, we see this in the real world every day. If I, if, if I were to pull vitamin D levels on most of the patients that I admit to the hospital who are sick or have uh, some inflammatory process going on, I would be completely unsurprised to find those to be uh, uh, very low, um, you know, among patients with any number of things, be it cancer, HIV, other chronic infections or acute infections, any autoimmune disease, inflammatory conditions, um, even, even obesity itself has a, has a pretty clear association with low vitamin D levels. But again, these are all correlations. These are all associations. People who don't have a clear or a very strong understanding of this, they will tend to hold up this kind of research and say, look at this association. This means that if I fix your vitamin D level, it will help this condition where there is that in no way does that follow <laughs> from, from the premise of there's this observation that people with this condition tend to have lower levels. That does not imply that if I treat you and bring those levels up, that it will fix or treat or improve any outcome. That is a separate hypothesis that needs to be tested directly in order to demonstrate that effect. Yeah. That, uh, inferring that is, it's just that the causal, you know, an informal fallacy, right? The post hoc ergo propter hoc sort of causation thing. It's like, yes, this per low vitamin D is associated with you know, individuals with obesity, individuals with type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. That doesn't mean it caused that for all, you know, it could be the other way. Oh, you have, you know, individual with excess adiposity that causes low vitamin D. Or there could be two things running in parallel. Correct. Yep. Yep. So I uh, have, again, it's a separate hypothesis. And so that's why we have to uh, test the, uh, the particular hypothesis with good quality, you know, research trials. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about now. But one more level of nuance. Austin's bringing the nuance here. And I think it's because he's so pissed off at talking about vitamin D. as <laughs> like this panacea that you just really want to make sure that we're talking about the, the data that everyone adequately understands. So it, what 
you know, when you're looking at vitamin D data, what are the main sort of things that you're kind of looking at to assess? Like, well, what does this study actually mean? What is it saying? And how do, how do I apply this to my current fund of knowledge? Yeah, I think this is a, a, an important piece that is, I would also hope that people take away from this podcast, in addition to the groundwork that we've laid so far, because when people, for some reason, decide to go out and argue on the internet, they will get sent links to these kind of papers, these abstracts, these studies on whatever topic. Currently, again, it's going to be, here's this here's this study on uh, uh, observational study on vitamin D and COVID outcomes. And this is why that you don't need any of these other things. You just need to take a lot of vitamin D or something like that. So the first thing that I would look at is what kind of trial am I looking at or what kind of paper am I looking at? Is this an observational uh, uh, analysis just showing a correlation between people who have lower vitamin D levels tend to have this bad thing? Uh, in which case, cool, that's a, a finding, I suppose, and it could generate a hypothesis for further testing, but it is otherwise basically, uh, A, unsurprising to me, and B, from a clinical decision standpoint, in other words, like from the standpoint of what am I going to do with this information, it's basically meaningless. It's not going to impact anything about what I do. Um, so that offhand, that immediately will help to uh, clarify a lot of people's thinking and decision-making uh, when they get into these kind of discussions and, and these papers are sent their way. If you do in fact have something like a randomized trial of supplementation and somebody is claiming that the supplementation has some sort of an effect, uh, what I'd want to look at in that paper is, yes, I want to make sure it's randomized. I want to make sure there's placebo control uh, when it comes to actual supplemental vitamin D use because you're using it effectively almost like a drug in that situation. I want to know what is the individual starting baseline level of vitamin D was that even checked? Because if you have a whole trial of people who already have enough vitamin D, you know, sufficient levels, then I'm going to be unsurprised when there's not any evidence of an effect. So where did they start? What was the actual intervention? What was the dose? What was the route? What was the formulation of the supplement? How was it given? How often? How much? And then finally, was there a measure of what level they got to at the end? Uh, because that's another you know, that would be another indicator that, oh, what we actually did, the intervention actually did what it was supposed to as far as bringing levels up. Now, does that, in a controlled fashion, show evidence of benefit um, on, most importantly, something that matters? I'd want to know, does it have an impact on an outcome that actually matters? So so I've been looking at some of the, the, the COVID studies, for example, vitamin D, and there was one that I saw recently that was like, they supplemented vitamin D, it was randomized and all this other good stuff. And then it was like, the outcome was like, how long did it take for somebody's PCR test to become negative? I'm like, who cares? That is not an outcome that matters. I care, does this person progress to have severe disease, need hospitalization, die, et cetera? Um, and so these are kind of all the things that I would look at uh, uh, when I'm trying to assess one of these papers. Is it observational, retrospective, correlational? Is it prospective, intervention? Where did they start? What did they give? How high did they get? And does that affect an outcome that actually matters? That'd be my like summary of uh, how to look at this research. I love it. Cool. So let, let's get into some some outcomes. So first off, we'll talk about bone density. Um, this is probably, again, where a lot of the, the the hype about vitamin D started. The thought was like, well, if you have low vitamin D levels, you're going to have osteoporosis or osteopenia, this bone loss, increased risk of fracture and falls. So we got to give you vitamin D and calcium because calcium is this mineral. It's obviously super important in bone mineral density. So uh, the evidence here is not great. And it, and it, and I don't mean not great in that it's, there's not a lot of it. There is a robust amount of evidence here. When I say not great, I mean, it is not convincing from my perspective that vitamin D supplementation with or without calcium does anything. 
with respect to reducing uh, sort of risk of falls, fracture, or uh, increasing bone mineral density to a clinically significant level, meaning that it prolongs someone's independence or well-being or other sort of like quality of life metric. Um, right now, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, their big data set on this, they reviewed 11 randomized controlled trials on vitamin D supplementation with or without additional calcium supplementation in over 50,000 healthy community-dwelling adults over the age of 50 without existing osteoporosis, vitamin D deficiency, or prior fractures, and did not find any evidence of benefit from supplementation. So effectively, right there, that big data set suggests, hey, if you don't have osteoporosis currently, you don't have a history of fracture or vitamin D deficiency, you probably don't need to be taking vitamin D. That's just right off, at least for bone dense, bone mineral density. Yeah, I think a, a fair amount of the variation that you see in the trials and the, the results here um, has to do with differences in study design, differences in the population that you're looking at. Again, you mentioned like community dwelling. I would distinguish that from institutionalized or hospitalized patients. Um, I think that there is probably a little bit more evidence for benefit in individuals who are in that institutionalized setting as far as reducing fracture risk. And so uh, definitely you want, if you're going to be trying to wade through this literature, I think looking at the generalizability of whatever paper you're looking at to the population that you are most interested in dealing with um, is going to be super important. So again, like the healthy asymptomatic community dwelling people who are just going around living their lives feeling fine. Yeah, I think that the odds that you're going to get them major benefits through this are, are pretty slim. People who are not in that demographic, who are not otherwise healthy, community-dwelling, asymptomatic people, um, then you have to look a lot more carefully at what population am I looking at and is that who is in this particular study? Because um, that's where you're going to find some more papers that have evidence for benefit on reduction in fras- fracture risk potentially falls, although I don't really, I'm, I'm less confident in that outcome as well. Uh, um, so, so that's kind of where some of the complexity arises here, but over, overall, you know, I don't know, like you said, that that would be our like top number one recommendation for how to, uh, avert the risk of fracture in these individuals rather like our bias is going to be more towards like training and stuff like that, but still we don't want to neglect, you know, what potential benefit there would be in a given population. It just needs to be supported in a study of that population. Agreed. Yep. Okay. Again, Austin's pet topic here, infection slash immunity. What's the, uh, what's the data say on, on that in vitamin D? Yeah, people love this topic. Um, people, you know, will decline all sorts of uh, uh, more effective interventions, I will say, uh, in favor of taking something like vitamin D, thinking that it will prevent their, uh, uh, prevent them from, from it, uh, experiencing some sort of an infection, most commonly respiratory infections. Um, and in recent years, I've had lots of people chat with me. And in, in fact, I wrote uh, uh, an article for our research review on this uh, 2017 paper by Martineau and, and colleagues and, and kind of tore that one up. Um, but him, his same group, uh, uh, they uh, published a 2021 new and updated meta-analysis in The Lancet um, where they uh, pulled data from 43 different randomized control trials where they actually got uh, uh, individual subject level data for 98% of the, the subjects. So this was like, again, just shy of 50,000 uh, subjects that were randomized to vitamin D supplementation versus placebo, admittedly with some variation in, again, like the dose and frequency and things like that in, in how they were being supplemented. But the ultimate finding in this meta-analysis of the effect of supplemental vitamin D on respiratory infections, um, not including COVID, so just like colds and things like that, was that in the supplemented group, there was a 61.3% uh, rate compared to 62.3% rate in the placebo group. So basically, this uh, uh, vitamin D supplementation was uh, 
estimated to have a 1% uh, uh, absolute risk reduction in uh, uh, for uh, respiratory infections. So definitely not the miracle preventative that many people seem to think it is for, for respiratory infection. And the main effect was seen for like pretty modest doses, like in the range of 400 to 1000 IUs, definitely not like mega dosing upwards of, you know, uh, uh, 5,000, 10,000 plus I use a day or, or a week or whatever the case is. Um, but as I mentioned, this particular paper did not include COVID as, a, as an outcome. And that's like more relevant than ever right now. So Cochrane, actually, the, the big kind of uh, meta-analysis systematic review organization, they have something that they're currently calling a quote, living systematic review that they're kind of updating in real time. And as more and more of this data comes out, and so far, they've really found insufficient evidence, this is quoting them, to show benefits of vitamin D supplementation for outcomes relating to COVID. And this probably has a lot to do, like I mentioned before, with a ton of the variation and heterogeneity of the, the different studies in terms of, you know, when it was started and, and what was the dose and the route and the frequency and things like that in people who are experiencing COVID. And this is, again, a hot topic. Uh, people are arguing really vigorously about this. And unfortunately, most of the people who are involved in these public discussions around vitamin D in the setting of COVID uh, either have not critically analyzed the studies or are actually unable to due to lack of training or knowledge on the topic. And very frequently, they will cite observational studies of, again, just associating, oh, yes, people who got admitted to the hospital with COVID, those who had low vitamin D did worse than those who had higher vitamin D levels. And it's like, yes. Completely unsurprising that people who are sicker are going to have lower levels because of what we talked about. And the people who are sicker are going to be more likely to die. This is not the same as saying that when I fix those levels that anybody's going to do any better. And so then it's like, okay, well, are there some randomized trials? There are some. There are varying sizes of these trials in terms of how much statistical power they'll get you. There's variation in the dosing, the frequency, the outcome measures. And again, that's like where you really want to look at next because again, the, the study that I mentioned earlier, where they looked at how long did it take for this person's PCR to become negative? It's like, I don't really care about that. And even more uh, frustrating is that this is being held up by somebody who probably like, you know, six months ago was thinking that PCR testing was worthless anyway. And now they're holding up a study <laughs> that uses that as their main outcome to say that they should be taking vitamin D instead of, you know, getting a vaccine or something like that. But uh, let's, let's, before we get too far down that one, <laughs> we can, we can move on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a similar relationship that we see for other health, health outcomes. You know, this, this correlational data between low vitamin D levels, serum levels, and negative health outcomes. So cardiovascular disease, uh, for example, like vitamin D, we know it's regula- It's involved in regulating blood pressure, uh, infl- uh, vascular cell growth, um, vascular function, a bunch of other things. And so it's no surprise that we see this association between higher serum vitamin D levels and a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. That's great. All right. So we have observational data showing that individuals with higher baseline vitamin D levels in the blood that we're measuring, that they, you know, have a lower risk of heart attack, stroke, heart failure, et cetera. Okay. Still no surprise here. The contrast here is though the intervention studies that we have on people with low levels of vitamin D, when we supplement them with vitamin D and their vitamin D levels go up, we still don't see a benefit in their cardiovascular disease risk. So what that means is that even if you have low vitamin D levels and then you get supplemented with vitamin D and you correct that vitamin D insufficiency or deficiency, it doesn't necessarily reduce your risk of having cardiovascular disease. Uh, The most um, uh, kind of important trial here is this, it's called the vital clinical trial, 
basically they found that vitamin D supplements did not significantly decrease the rates of heart attacks, strokes, or deaths from cardiovascular disease, uh, independent of what people's baseline vitamin D levels were. So even individuals with low vitamin D levels to start who corrected that with vitamin D supplementation did not have, a, did not see a benefit from that. And so it's not like we're saying that vitamin D is not correlated to cardiovascular disease. It is very clearly, right? Just that the reasons why somebody's vitamin D levels are what they are, are more complicated than just how much sunlight they're getting, how much food that, you know, containing vitamin D are they consuming? There are other regulators of their vitamin D levels that have a larger impact on their health trajectory than just how much vitamin D they're getting in on a day-to-day -day basis, which is why supplementing with vitamin D in this particular disease process doesn't seem to do anything. Anyway, we'll see that relationship repeated over and over again. So for example, in cancer, there's mechanistic data showing that vitamin D may inhibit tumor formation and progression, but actual data is mixed on like how much vitamin D people take in from food, from sun exposure, et cetera, and their cancer outcomes. Um, so a meta-analysis of 16 studies, over 130,000 subjects showed that an increase in serum vitamin D levels, that's what we're measuring in the blood, was associated with a reduced risk of developing cancer and dying from cancer. So again, the same pattern holds true. If you have a higher vitamin D level, right, just that baseline, you seem to be healthier. You seem to have less bad stuff happen to you from cancer. Great. But what about vitamin D supplementation in those with low vitamin D levels who either have cancer or in individuals who don't yet have cancer and then we follow them for a long time? What does that show? Well, it shows no reduced risk of developing cancer or cancer progression with vitamin D supplementation. So we don't really, the, the evidence that we have at present does not show an improvement in sort of, or reduced risk in cancer development or cancer progression. However, there's some data showing that individuals who already were diagnosed with cancer who then start supplementing with vitamin D may have a reduced mortality risk. However, all of the authors universally are like, hey, we think that this is just an artifact, uh, basically an attrition bias. Like the people uh, uh, who, who we had, uh, for example, who were, uh, were not a representative sample, for example. And so this needs more study. I don't know that I'd feel comfortable saying, yeah, you should take vitamin D to reduce your risk of dying from, from cancer. Um, but the data right now does not suggest a benefit or like a reduced risk of developing cancer um, from vitamin D supplementation, even though even though vitamin D levels are associated with cancer risk. It's just, I know it's hard for people to wrap their brains around. It's just, again, you have to understand that vitamin D levels are more complex than just taking a pill or what you eat or how much sun you're exposed to. It's just more complex than that. Um, the two other things I'll talk about uh, have to do with depression. And then finally, because this is the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we got to talk about gains. Um, so vitamin D is involved in various brain processes and vitamin D receptors are present on neurons and glia, different areas of the brain. It's thought to be involved in depression. And similar to these other disease processes, we see an association an association in large meta-analyses between low levels of serum vitamin D levels and depression. So the lower your level of vitamin D is um, in the serum, the, uh, you have an increased risk of depression. But when you supplement those individuals with vitamin D uh, to help treat major depressive disorder or even mild de uh, depression, they don't seem to have improved outcomes. The problem with this data, these data, however, is that some of these individuals were not on the correct treatment. They weren't getting an antidepressant, for example, or behavioral therapy. So it's hard to determine, like, did vitamin D have no effect or were they just being undertreated otherwise? Um, so I feel less confident 
about that. But I can say that the data we have currently does not suggest that vitamin D reduces the risk of depression in individuals who are not currently depressed. And it does not improve the clinical outcome, it appears, for individuals who have already been diagnosed with depression and being adequately managed. Um, so I don't know that vitamin D would be the move there. Again, we see this relationship between low vitamin D levels in the blood, but necessarily fixing that with, uh, with supplementation, I can't say for sure that that's uh, going to do anything and the data does not support that it does. Um, with respect to gains, vitamin D we know is regulate is involved in calcium regulation at the level of the muscle, creating new muscle cells, muscle repair and preservation of muscle size. So vitamin D deficiency has been associated with type two muscle fiber atrophy, for example, decreased satellite signaling after a workout, if you're low in vitamin D and uh, it turns out lots of athletes are actually deficient in vitamin D. So like a third of all NBA players and a quarter of NFL players are vitamin D deficient, yet they can still perform the highest level uh, in their particular, their particular sports. So that's interesting. Uh, we've also, there's also studies showing uh, deficiencies in dancers, swimmers, volleyball players, taekwondo fighters, jockeys, runners, weightlifters, et cetera, which again is no surprise. Um, so the question then is, does taking a vitamin D supplement improve gains? Uh, the data here overall is very weak to support vitamin D supplementation and improved exercise performance. There are a handful of positive studies, i.e. studies showing like, hey, taking a vitamin D supplement increases performance. Um, the problem with these data is that they usually don't measure vitamin D levels before and after. So we don't actually know if vitamin D levels changed regardless of supplementation. And uh, the individual data is not really uh, reported most of the time, meaning like, did one person have a 300% increase in their vertical jump and everybody else stayed the same? Like in which case that's an outlier and the average result is kind of irrelevant. But in any case, there are two studies that show a 7% improvement in vertical jump over eight weeks. Another two studies showing an increase in VO2 max. And there's one study showing an increase in isokinetic strength, which basically has these people strapped to a fancy leg extension or leg curl machine, and they're contracting as hard as they can against a constantly moving apparatus. So a handful, literally a handful of studies showing a positive effect of vitamin D supplementation on muscle uh, outcomes uh, and training outcomes. In contrast, there are double the amount of studies showing no increase in muscle strength, power, vertical jump in professional rugby and football players, dancers. There's actually a funny study on NASCAR race teams where they supplemented them with vitamin D before and after this 12-week uh, training program, they measured their 1RM bench press, which is cool. I mean, I guess you got a bench press if you're, you know, slanging tires and lighting fires. Hell yeah, brother. But no improvement in, in, uh, in, in strength outcomes there. No difference. And these are all placebo-controlled, which is, again, the type of study that you'd want um, to kind of assess this question. So... My take is very similar to the other, uh, can, you know, issues we've talked about so far. Yeah, there may be a relationship between serum vitamin D levels and like exercise performance at baseline, but I don't know that supplementing vitamin D actually does anything. Um, I, I would suspect just again, based on the existing data and the data from other um, sort of health related uh, uh, conditions that there's probably, you know, little to no effect of supplementing vitamin D on on training outcomes. So again, just to reiterate, we're talking about all of these different health outcomes and also performance outcomes and how vitamin D supplementation may or may not affect them. Um, the takeaway is this, is just because there's a correlation with low serum vitamin D levels 
we should not necessarily assume that supplementing with vitamin D to correct those levels actually changes the outcome. As you mentioned at the beginning of this, that is a separate hypothesis that needs to be tested. And as we can, you know, as we covered through most of these medical conditions, correcting low vitamin D levels with supplemental vitamin D, even when it does correct that low vitamin D level, does not seem to actually affect the outcomes favorably. And so, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. There's a non-zero risk of supplementing with vitamin D or any supplements, period. And uh, if it's not improving outcomes, then, you know, wh why are we doing it? Um, and if you decide to go down this rabbit hole on your own and, quote, unquote, do your own research, because you can. If you can look for studies on any particular health or even performance uh, metric and vitamin D and you'll find some stuff on it, what you need to evaluate then is what kind of study is it? Is this randomized? It is a is it a prospective design? So looking, you know, where people, one group of people gets the vitamin D supplement and another person gets, another group gets placebo, uh, or is it observational where they just look at people taking vitamin D versus people not taking vitamin D or vitamin D levels in one group versus vitamin D groups in another group, like a case control kind of study, uh, or is it retrospective where you're looking back on data? So what kind of study is it? Does the study report the baseline starting blood level of vitamin D? And then how does it change throughout the study, you'd want to know that because if you were supplementing with vitamin D and it caused a specific outcome, you'd want to make sure there's some biological plausibility there and like it affected the vitamin D serum levels. What was the dose and formulation of the vitamin D? Were they getting a you know special prescription type of vitamin D that you can't get your hands on? Was it vitamin D2? Was it vitamin D3? What was the dose? How frequently were they getting the dosing? Um, and, and then is the study actually measuring an outcome that matters? So like you mentioned earlier, like the time to PCR negative COVID testing. They, they, no one cares about that. Literally no one cares. It, it is something you can measure, but what you'd really want to know is, does it reduce the duration of symptoms? Does it reduce the severity of symptoms of COVID-19? Does it reduce the risk of getting, you know, transmission or infection or whatever, right? Those are all important clinical outcomes. Um, and so, and in performance, you'd want to know, does it improve strength and how are you measuring strength? Does it improve muscular hypertrophy and how are you measuring that? You don't really care about EMG activity. You care about muscle cross-sectional areas measured by ultrasound or a DEXA scan or something like that. So in any case, th that's like the, how to read the research there. Yeah. I don't want people to come away necessarily thinking that this entire field is like worthless and there's no reason to ever use this stuff because right. there are certainly situations where I would recommend it for somebody. Um, but I think that the claims that go around out there just really need to be held to a much higher standard. And currently they're, they're really not. I think that a lot of the conversation around most disease states where there is some sort of a correlation, you will very commonly come across people who will hold up an observational trial and say, uh, or an observational, you know, paper and just say, oh, well, this is obviously a big issue. And, and for so many things, there is like some sort of a mechanism that, that you can, um, you know, that, that generates some sort of plausibility, like, oh, this could be how this works. And because of this correlation, I'm going to put these together and say that you should supplement for this reason. And it's like, that's still not enough to justify it. Um, or, or definitely not enough to, to have a strong, confident opinion that this should be used in the treatment of something, um, when you don't really have the actual direct evidence that that's the case. Yeah. And, and, and then I think, you know, what we look for, uh, if we're trying to make an educated guess where data is lacking, is you look for converging lines of evidence, like kind of around the question that you don't necessarily have a, a good answer to. And the converging lines of evidence around vitamin D is that 
you know, correcting those low levels doesn't seem to do a whole lot outside of like very specific sort of situations. Uh, so, for example, individuals with kidney disease who, are, you know, they're they're unable to they do literally that can't make their own vitamin D. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. So but, you know, so that mean, that doesn't mean that vitamin D supplementation is worthless. It's just in a lot of situations, it does kind of seem like it's not having a favorable impact on outcomes. And so my kind of default assumption is when we look at vitamin D studies or we're investigating vitamin D for how it affects a, a particular outcome is that it's probably not going to work. That, that's my net, my assumption right now. Worse, whereas other people who are like vitamin D champions they love vitamin d and it's like the panacea you know it's like oh you got this vitamin d you got the, you know if your treatment for, for everything is one is vitamin d i don't know the vitamin d treats anything yeah i think it's one of those scenarios where if the intervention that we're talking about had a very large robust effect given the amount of research that's been done on this to this point we would definitely have seen it by now um and so to the extent that there are uh, effects that might be statistically significant for a lot of these various things that we've talked about so far, they seem to be real minor or non-existent. Um, and so there are even some, uh, st some, some like kind of meta-analyses on the use of vitamin D in certain contexts where you will come across a very, very rare statement in a scientific paper where it says, further study is unlikely to change the conclusions Oh, that's <laughs> as, a, as opposed to the usual, like further study is needed. There are actually some where that's what's, you know, that's what's said at the end because they're like, guys, we've beaten this to death. And if we haven't found an effect yet, even if there is one, it's going to be trivial in terms of significance. So yeah. move, move on. <laughs> yeah. Like if your P value is like 0. 0.004, what you need to do is run enough trials that you get lucky one of the times <laughs> <laughs> and show show an effect. So, um, all right, cool. Well, now to get an even more controversial stuff, let's actually talk about what it means to be vitamin D deficient and like what are some risk factors for, for that. Um, when you guys are in the hospital, when are you getting vitamin D levels on patients? It's not obviously not when everyone rock, walks through the board, uh, comes through the door, but like how, how yeah, often for, you learn for, that? For me, I'm in like acute care. So I'm admitting and treating people who are, you know, acutely ill. Um, and uh, I basically never measure vitamin D levels on patients when I admit them to the hospital. Um, the only exception to that might be somebody who um, is being admitted for perhaps a hip fracture. And we're thinking that, oh, they may have underlying osteoporosis and we need to, we're anticipating that they're going to be treated with some sort of osteoporosis directed uh, medications, which mm -hmm. require you to be sufficient to have sufficient uh, uh, vitamin D levels before starting those kind of treatments. And so that's kind of an anticipatory situation, but basically in no other medical context um, where I'm admitting somebody to the hospital, am I measuring a vitamin D level? Cause I basically, like we've talked about so far, I'm expecting it to be low cause they're sick. Um, yeah. So uh, if, if somebody comes in and their vitamin D level is like, you know, 50 or something like that, I'm like, you're probably too well to even be admitted. Here right, now. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Why is your vitamin D level normal? You're too, you're too <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I suppose if you had like a, a finding of like hypercalcemia that was very impressive, you might get a vitamin D level just to like, hey, is this like super high for some particular reason? Is this vitamin D toxicity? Do they have like some sort of tumor? Like, like what's going on? But yeah. 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 That's the only situation where it's measured for like a diagnostic evaluation. Um, I thought you were getting it like, you know, in anticipation of wanting to treat somebody with vitamin no, D. Vitamin that's definitely D, not no. it. But yeah, in the work, in the evaluation of, uh, of high calcium levels, that's for sure a situation yeah. where that gets done. Yeah. I just want to impress upon our listenership, like we're not really, you know, you wouldn't routinely measure this stuff to like go about diagnosing folks with low vitamin D in like an acute care setting. Um, but in the outpatient setting, 
uh, people do get their vitamin D levels checked all the time, even though that's not the recommendation. And so because of that, we've had to come up with diagnostic sort of levels, like cut points to call someone vitamin D sufficient or insufficient or deficient. And then what is a level where we see toxicity? And so right now, these levels uh, for vitamin D sufficiency is 20 nanograms per milliliter or 50 nanomoles per liter, whereas insufficient would be between 12 and 20 nanograms per milliliter or 30 to 50 nanomoles per liter. And then deficient is below that, below 12 nanograms per milliliter, below 30 nanomoles per liter. And a risk of toxicity is anything over 100 nanograms per milliliter or greater than 250 nanomoles per liter. And you can look that up. This is like pretty much the the, the cut points that's used uh, in for most national and international organizations, though this is controversial. Uh, in different countries and different organizations, but they all kind of hem and haw about this and end up at the, a very similar level, even though they're like, well, these authors would prefer to raise the level by which uh, for sufficiency, they want to la- raise it above uh, 50 nanograms per milliliter or something. And it's like, yeah, okay, but why? And they're like, well, you know, we, uh, we don't know yet. Uh, so in any case, when we're talking about vitamin D deficient, that's kind of a more severe sort of vitamin D uh, or lower vitamin D level than vitamin D insufficient. And then they're, and they're kind of, again, specific sort of cut points for vitamin D sufficiency and uh, the risk of toxicity. So yeah, people are getting these uh, measured uh, by their general practice doc or their functional medicine doctor, or just, you know, getting our labs. My Leonard, my dad, again, he's like, uh, you know, I I tell the story because Every time we talk about labs, he does. I got my yearly labs. I'm like, what yearly labs though? <laughs> you know? Like, what do you? Uh, and any, he's like, yeah, I got my vitamin D level, and it was uh, it was low. And I go, well, what what was it? And uh, he was at 25 nanograms per milliliter. I go, that's not low. You're sufficient. You know, he's like, well, my doctor wants it above 30. I go, did you ask why? And again, it's not because I think his doctor is like not practicing evidence-based medicine or, you know, whatever. It's just like, what, why? Because I, I think you can have that opinion, but it's just not based on like strong, robust evidence. This is kind of like a hedge. And then if you've been listening to any of this podcast so far, the hedge would be, yeah, well, if your vitamin D level is higher, I could assume that you have less inflammatory or less sort of uh, med- underlying medical conditions that drive your vitamin D level down, which would be true. I just don't know how to raise your vitamin D level outside of making you healthier in general. So like decreasing excess adiposity, decreasing body fat, increasing activity levels to a healthy amount, like making sure you don't have an underlying infection or auto untreated autoimmune disease. And like, you know, all these other sort of health promoting, um, uh, activities and, and, and lifestyle changes. So, um, do you, since you're not in primary care anymore, only in the hospital. I, I imagine, though, you still get people that come in the hospital that are on vitamin D for vitamin D deficiency. Oh, yeah, real frequently. And even in some of the telemedicine work that I do, you know, from a primary care standpoint, I get questions about it all the time. So it's it's a very, very, very common kind of question, common topic, because, yeah, people talk about it all over the place for all sorts of different things. <laughs> yeah. And do you feel strongly that there should be like a different sufficiency cutoff or like, what do you how do you think about these cutoff points? 
Yeah, I think that one of the interesting kind of uh, areas of controversy is whether there should be different cutoffs depending on some of the outcomes that you're looking at. In other words, like for skeletal outcomes for like, as you said, the quote unquote bone health, whether that, you know, uh, is is sort of optimized on a population level at a higher cutoff or or whether there's evidence to support different cutoffs for different kind of health outcomes. And at this point, we really don't have any of that. And so, yeah, if somebody, uh, if somebody's level, you know, is, is, is over 20, like in this, again, uh, American units, nanograms per mil, um, or over 50 nanomoles per liter, I'm really not too worried about it. And, and most of the time, the patients that I'm seeing have some sort of, uh, underlying medical condition, or they may have some excess body fat or whatever the case is. And I say, Hey, let's, let's work on this stuff. Um, if they are super, 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 you know, worried about it, then of course that was uh, a mistake to draw it in the first place. Um, but, uh, but, um, you know, some people, some people get really obsessive over making all their numbers look pretty on their, on their labs. Uh, but I don't have a, a strong reason at the moment to say, oh yeah, that, I, that I'm going to insist that on a population level, everybody be, you know, up in this range. Cause again, based on a lot of the data we've looked at so far, it's like across the population in the general quote, community dwelling, healthy, otherwise healthy, asymptomatic people, I'm not convinced that there's going to be, you know, substantial shifts in population health by doing that. Yeah. The only thing I don't know, well, (laughs) there are plenty of things (laughs) that I don't know, but with respect to like changing the vitamin D cut points, if that maybe allots additional resources and, and, and manpower to alter some of the fortification strategies and policies that we have. So for example, if you raise like the sufficiency level, and you raise the insufficiency level and deficiency level so that more people are deficient and insufficient and less people are sufficient, do you get more money, more resources, more, more, you know, stuff to really hammer out the optimal fortification strategy? And so therefore you're making the, the bottom quartile of people who are like on the cusp, they're now having more vitamin D in their food to raise their vitamin D levels. Like, I, and, and is that a benefit? I don't, I don't know yeah, the answer to yeah, either yeah. of those questions. <laughs> I, I, I just think like that might be one of those hidden kind of like knock on effects to yeah. changing these levels. But I would love if everyone, you know, that any primary care doc ever saw had like a vitamin D level of like 35 or 40 or something like that, you know, or they all went up by like 5% and nobody reached toxicity. Like that would be great because that just means that people were healthier in general. I mean, that's how I would interpret that shift, right? Rather than like, well, now we're optimizing people's vitamin D supplementation. Like, I don't... Right, right. We're already not seeing, you know, rickets uh, in the developed world. So so the outright like severe deficiency causing that level of a complication, you know, we don't, we're not really seeing uh, to any significant degree. Um, but yeah, you're right that the question is, would shifting it, you know, X percent higher, how much of an impact would that have on population health through something like a fortification strategy? I'd be more skeptical that that would have a huge effect compared to shifting it higher as a result of generally healthier people, which, you know, yeah, kind promoting of activities. Back, backwards. Yeah, right. Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah, well, it's just like you can't get you probably can't get more people to spend more time outside uh, without extra risk of like particularly people with super fair skin having an increased rate of skin cancer. So that's probably not the population health move. So it's probably a fortification strategy because you can't get everyone to (laughs) do more health promoting activities. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, so what are some risk factors for actually having low vitamin D levels? We've, we've talked a little bit about it, but if you were going to, you know, try to cover to the listeners at home, like what are the risks, uh, risk factors? 
Yeah, there's there's a bunch, and and a lot of things can be, in the human physiology can be simplified or viewed as like an inverse is out problem. And so uh, one way is you know decreased amount of vitamin D intake. So that could be uh, 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 dietary factors. So a frankly, you know malnourished individual or somebody who is having a, a, a severe uh, deficiency from their dietary standpoint, or it's in their diet but they can't absorb it. So people who have gastrointestinal issues uh, like celiac disease, short gut syndrome, who've had gastric bypass or chronic pancreatitis, pancreatic insufficiency, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, especially cystic fibrosis is actually a real common one. Um, and so uh, where, where fat soluble vitamin deficiency can be an issue in particular because of the way the pancreas is no longer uh, doing its job. So that's kind of on the intake side um, as well. You know, people who have nil sun exposure, that can, that can be a, a contributor to having uh, uh, low levels. And then of course, you know, we, we described at the beginning how the liver and kidneys play important roles in both synthesizing, activating vitamin D, but also in the uh, production and regulation of vitamin D binding protein levels. So kidney and liver disease can contribute certain medicines can, can influence, you know, blood levels of these things. Um, and so the other interesting uh, uh, area that, that we've alluded to a little bit, but again, inflammation, cortisol, estrogen levels can all influence it. There's ethnic variation, um, in, in, uh, uh blood levels. And this is at least in part thought to be d due to ethnic differences in actually their vitamin D binding protein levels, which then impacts the, the total amount that's circulating in the mm -hmm. blood. And then sometimes the vitamin D that an individual does have can kind of like be hidden or, or diluted out of the blood, uh, particularly in situations of obesity. And so, um, uh, Obesity is really commonly associated with lower vitamin D levels. Um, interestingly, they don't seem to have any significant adverse bone-related effects. In fact, individuals with obesity, if anything, tend to have higher mm -hmm. bone mineral densities a lot of the time, um, which is kind of uh, seemingly paradoxical until you recognize that this stuff is complicated. Uh, but there's a bunch of different hypotheses as far as how individuals with obesity can uh, uh, develop low blood vitamin D levels, whether it's being diluted, sequestered, you know, in, into the fat tissue, for example, if it's being redistributed somehow. Um, so that's probably, you know, if I had to pick, I'd say that's probably one of the more, more common uh, reasons why we might see lower uh, vitamin D levels when they are checked in a lot of people aside from having underlying, you know, disease states other than obesity. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and I, th I think we should also just clarify, like the normal trajectory of vitamin D as people age, it does tend the tend to go down. Uh, not you get worse at making it, but the, and also like that's due to skin changes, blood circulation changes, changes in you know uh, uh, the organ's ability to make active vitamin D. Um, but getting having a an objectively low level, so having vitamin D insufficiency or def deficiency is probably not a normal function of aging. Um, ra rather, they're it's likely due to either medical conditions, medications, or something else that's going on. Not just, well, you're a little older, and so that's normal. That's not necessarily the case, even though older individuals do tend to have lower levels, but that's chronic comorbidities, medications, um, and then, yeah, decreased ability to synthesize and, and, uh, and make vitamin D. Um, so with that in mind, you know, who, who should get tested? Just, should we start a testing company? I've been looking to branch <laughs> out, you know, have, have some more business uh, opportunities here. <laughs> That's a starting an unnecessary screening program at Barbell Medicine is a great way to, uh, uh, if you wanted to get me to resign, that'd be a great way to do it. <laughs> Yo, yeah, we're coming off the vitamin D supplement and an at home testing, <laughs> yeah. testing protocol. 
Yeah. So, so testing has skyrocketed in the past, you know, couple decades. And uh, one study reported a more than 80 fold increase in Medicare reimbursement uh, for vitamin D testing between 2000 and 2010. I don't suspect that that uh, trajectory has like reversed itself in the in the subsequent 10 years since then. Um, and this is despite us not, again, not having evidence to support screening. Screening by definition is testing individuals who have no symptoms, no complaints. They're just coming in to, like you said, get their labs. Um, we have no evidence to support screening people who are otherwise healthy, community dwelling individuals with who have no symptoms. This means that if you are in this category, there is not a good reason to check your blood levels uh, or to, to supplement in, in the vast majority of cases. Um, however, a lot of people end up getting checked, getting them checked anyway, because they ask and people just either (laughs) don't know the evidence on this, or it's easier to just order the test. Um, but you know, people who have, uh, uh, more of those risk factors that we described previously are people for whom it is definitely worth testing in particular, those who have those kind of, uh, inflammatory and malabsorptive sort of issues. So, so like patients with cystic fibrosis, people with chronic pancreatitis, um, pancreatic insufficiency, people who've had their pancreas taken out, um, for, for various reasons, those are all kind of populations in whom it would be worth checking. Um, interestingly, there's there's not really any clear consensus set of guidelines on who should be tested. But I looked earlier before this podcast, I popped onto the to the up to date article just to see what they said as far as like people who should be who should be tested. And they even included individuals with obesity in this. And I'm still kind of wondering, I'm puzzled by that. I'm like, why? Because yeah. again, it's like we know that they have low levels, we don't have great evidence that supplementing them reverses that issue. It doesn't, you know, address the obesity and they don't have the bone consequences of it, um, in particular. Uh, so, so I'm a bit puzzled by that, but, um, yeah, so people who have more substantial risk factors for, for deficiency are, are people in whom I'd be, you know, have much more willingness to, to check as compared to people who are just strolling in, feeling good, no complaints. And they just like, uh, want to get their labs done. There's really not a good reason to justify that. One, one of the good quotes, one of the, one of the good quotes I've heard is uh, that you can't make a completely asymptomatic person feel any better. Um, of course, you know, <laughs> to some extent, there are still screening tests that are, that are worth doing even in that person, like their blood pressure and their blood lipids and things like that. But, but in general, like they have such little to gain from testing and, and supplementing as a result when they have like no issues going on, no underlying medical problems, et cetera. So, yeah. No, it, it, you know, so the vitamin vitamin D is not part of like the American Board of Obesity Medicine's like sort of recommended best practice. So I'm on, I don't know where the up to date thing is like. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, you know, sometimes sometimes even up to date can be uh, controversial. <laughs> but yeah. uh, if you pop onto the Choosing Wisely website, so Choosing Wisely is like this compendium of like overperformed either medical procedures, tests or whatever. It's an effort to like, Hey, let's stop spending everybody's money on procedures. value care. Correct. Yes, exactly. Uh, in 2015, Medicare spent $337 million on vitamin D tests, which, uh, was up over 15 mil from the year before. It's the fifth most popular lab test right now. And it's like, (laughs) it is insane because when you consider that even finding a low level and treating it, does not seem to reliably improve outcomes across, you know, a a wide range of disease processes. And so you're like, yes, maybe in some cases. And in fact, so if you have osteoporosis, if you have a disease like inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, kidney disease, liver disease, pancreatic disease, you've had a history of gastrointestinal surgery, like, and you're at risk for like, you know, just malabsorption. Yeah. But you are already going to be, you know, 
be worked up for malabsorptive sort of uh, issues anyway. Like that's a lifelong, that's, that's what you're dealing with, you know? And I'm not trying to minimize the symptoms. I'm just, I'm, what I'm saying is like, if you don't fall into one of those categories, right, you either have osteoporosis, osteopenia, or some sort of malabsorptive uh, issue, like, why, why are you checking your vitamin D? Why do you want to check your vitamin D? Especially after listening to this podcast, because if anything, by now you should be thinking like, <laughs> this might not be all it was cracked up to be. And that's exactly how I feel. You know, if you would have asked me 10 years ago what I thought about vitamin D, you know, I'd have been like, yeah, you know, probably most people should take it. It's low risk and, you know, it's not a big deal. And it's like, okay, but there's a cost here, right? And further, it's almost like a Band-Aid on something that you could be directing energy and resources to actually fixing, right? Because if somebody actually has a low vitamin D level, I'm like, okay, so there's something underlying some chronic disease that's either apparent or hidden. And we should probably to address that to the extent we can with health promoting behaviors, uh, additional medical screening if necessary, like, and, and, and medical interventions if necessary, uh, rather than saying, yeah, let's just fix your vitamin D level. And, and that's a, you know, a different way of looking at it. It's not sexy. I can't fit that into a tweet, but uh, you know, we can make it. We can make an hour and a half long podcast. We can do that. <laughs> All right. So, recommendations for management. So, if you were telling your intern, new intern on service, here's my vitamin D spiel, and you're wrapping it up. What are your recommendations for for people with uh, who are either curious about their vitamin D level or or interested in managing their vitamin D level? Yeah, I'd, I'd be taking a pretty thorough history and, and um, you know, looking at the person's medical history and their medications and things like that, and basically searching for reasons to look, reasons to search for this as a potential issue, um, you know, be it uh, one of these kind of inflammatory, autoimmune, absorptive kind of issues, um, basically a, a, a reason that's going to push me over the edge to where I would say, oh, yeah. Uh, you actually stand to benefit more than most from supplementation if we are to find a low level um, versus let's check. And if we find a low level, then I'm going to tell you, oh, but supplementing might probably won't help you anyway, in which case, what was the point? Um, or if we check because you're and you're completely healthy and I expect it's going to be normal and it is normal. And then, you know, again, wasn't really worth our time um, when we don't have great reason to, to screen somebody who has no issues or, or symptoms or complaints. Um, and so, you know, as far as some of the, the lifestyle kind of aspects of this, the, the, um, the other ways that we can get to sufficient levels aside from meeting all of our kind of general guidelines for, for health promoting behaviors and, and our like seven priorities for, for health, that, that article that we have on our website, so you've mentioned some some sun exposure recommendations, and it really doesn't take a whole lot, uh, anywhere from five to fifteen minutes of sun, you know, around midday, plus or minus a couple hours in this like ten to three time frame, in most non winter months, um, is going to be going to be enough to get most people a solid dose of, of vitamin D synthesis. And again, remember, you know, while you may want to have let's say, you know, the goal is to have relatively consistently sufficient vitamin D levels around the year. Again, remember that you know, the storage form that we all have, it hangs around for a couple weeks, like it has a decent half-life. And so this stuff is not like if you if you don't get enough sun one day, suddenly you're going to be deficient. There's a, there's a reason why um, we have this kind of storage capacity in our blood on the vitamin D binding protein that we've talked about. Um, you want to you tackle some of this RDA and, and dietary uh, intake side? Yeah. So in addition to sun exposure, obviously getting enough in uh, via dietary for, via dietary intake would be important. Um, so again, it's recommended that all adults or basically all individuals age one year and older, so that's adolescents and adults, get 
600 to 800 IUs, international units per day. Uh, for older individuals over the age of 65, the American Geriatric Society and National Osteoporosis Foundation recommends 800 to 1,000 IUs per day. Uh, the problem is um, most people with just limited to their, their dietary intake are consuming less than 400 IUs of vitamin D per day. So not even getting to that bottom level. Um, so again, there are a few foods that have a bunch of naturally occurring vitamin D in them, but those are mainly fatty fish and uh, mushrooms or mushroom powder. Again, plus one if that mushroom powder is treated with UV light. Uh, but a lot of our foods are fortified. A lot of the dairy products, in particular milk, uh, most yogurts, cereals tend to be fortified. Um, so you can check that out. The next part of the, uh, this recommendation would be for supplementation. And again, in general, if somebody's supplementing, you know, a small amount of vitamin D per day, a thousand, two thousand IUs per day, I, I that doesn't get me excited from like a toxicity risk. And and even when you delve into the literature, like the toxicity risk does not start being a problem like reliably until we're talking doses over ten thousand IUs per day. Uh, that said, the tolerable upper limit where some toxicity does start to appear is about 4,000 IUs per day. And so that's from all like dietary and uh, supplement components. Um, and you're thinking 4,000 IUs a day, the average person is not even taking 400 IUs a day. So people probably aren't getting there, not so fast. So right now, uh, based on the the most current evidence we have on the survey data, uh, close to half of all adults in the United States uh, are close to a third of all adults in the United States are taking a vitamin D supplement. Um, and that actually gets higher when we talk about individuals over the age of 60. So about 50% of all men and 60% of all women are taking a vitamin D supplement. And when you combine their uh, vitamin D intake from food and uh, supplements, uh, about three and a half percent of these individuals are taking more than 4,000 IUs per day which is, again, that tolerable upper, lim upper limit where toxicity, toxicity does start to occur. And so that's not a, a super high number, but it's not zero. It's not like, oh, nobody is <laughs> getting toxic on vitamin D. Some people are having uh, uh, toxicity. And that's in addition to risks of supplement contamination, which run rampant in that industry, um, in addition to uh, uh, contamination um, and uh, other illicit substances. I mean, there was a, a vitamin C supplement um, and I'm not going to name the manufacturer, but uh, effectively it had, <laughs> it had a barbiturate in there and an amphetamine. And it's like, I wonder if people knew like that they were like, getting something that they shouldn't have because uh, like on average that would balance it, balance you out. But like, it's, you know, for somebody to have some, maybe some medical side effect. Um, yeah. And so if you're looking to take a vitamin D supplement, you look for something that's CGMP certified. So that actually means they're certified that they adhere to the good manufacturing processes uh, and they're registered with the FDA. Uh, close to half of all supplement manufacturers are not registered with the FDA and the FDA just hasn't cracked down on them yet because they're backlogged on this. Uh, so you'd want to see that on the label, CGMP. There's a European GMP as well. I think it's eGMP, I forget. But it's again, it's on the label. And then you'd want some sort of third-party testing. Um, basically, third-party testing batch tests each batch of supplements to make sure that there's no contamination contaminants in there. Um, there are varying different levels that you can kind of pay for. Like us as a manufacturer, we pay for a particular level of testing that makes sure there's no contaminants and that none of the uh, stuff in our supplements would actually uh, have people test positive for like a WADA drug test. But you can pay for additional levels of testing um, even above that. 
And so you would see on the label again, either NSF, uh, USP, um, informed consent, informed for sport, all of these things would be prominently displayed on the label to make sure that the vitamin D supplement, for example, that you're taking is in fact a vitamin D supplement at the correct dosing. Um, and yeah, if you want to take a thousand or two thousand IUs a day, like I'm not going to argue with you, I'm not going to argue with you over that. I still don't know that it's doing anything, but yeah. I am much less concerned that it's actually going to harm you if you're adhering to that sort of supplement guidelines and uh, any risk of toxicity. But I mean, I remember the paleo crowd was like, everybody needs to take 5,000 IUs of vitamin D3 per day. And it's like, yeah, so no. And then also, also like, this was, Where? was this before or after they were choking down like 20 fish oil pills a day? Back, right, there was back, a fish oil calculator, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fish oil. I, I, mad, I wonder how many of those guys went into AFib, you know, just spontaneously. <laughs> They're like, I can feel it working. I'm like, nope, that's just AFib. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, there are a lot of people taking the supplement right now, and I think if you're going to do it, um, do it responsibly. And it, again, making sure the supplement itself is, uh, is high quality and that you're not taking too much. If you're taking 1,000 IUs a day, cool. You know, I'm not recommending that people take a thousand IUs per day. I'm just saying that if someone were to want to take a vitamin D supplement, okay, I, I don't know that it's doing anything for you to be clear, but I feel much better that it's not harming you if it's a high quality supplement and we're not getting over that tolerable upper limit of 4,000 IUs per day. Uh, in addition, yeah, eating, eating some fatty fish a couple times a week, uh, mushrooms, if those are your jams or, or uh, including some fortified foods in your diet. Uh, and then finally, we, we talked a little bit about medications. Um, some medications, uh, particularly like steroids, uh, corticosteroids, orlistat, statins may reduce vitamin D absorption. And so if somebody's on uh, one or more of those medications and they have a spurious vi low vitamin D level, again, why was the vitamin D level being tested in the first place? I have questions, uh, but that's not necessarily surprising. Uh, and if someone's on a thiazide diuretic, that can actually increase calcium levels. And if somebody's taking a vitamin D supplement on top of that, uh, you could run into a hypercalcemia sort of uh, situation. And hypercalcemia is one of the big toxicity risks. Um, effectively, if you take in too much vitamin D and your calcium levels go too high, you get high calcium levels in the blood, high calcium levels in the urine. If it gets really high, that calcium can deposit in tissues, that metastatic calcinosis kind of thing. Uh, you can increase your risk of kidney stones, all no bueno. There's neuro neuropsychiatric effects, no bueno. Um, and so I just don't know that people need to be taking a ton of vitamin D, period, uh, unless they're directed to do that by their doctor because they're treating a specific deficiency from either a malabsorptive disease, kidney disease, liver disease, something like that. Uh, otherwise, if again, if you're generally healthy, walking around, you don't have any risk factors for low vitamin D, I just, I wouldn't take vitamin D. I, I mean, I don't know what else to say. Like I'm, I'm dancing around this so much because I think people are going to supplement anyway, right? They're going to listen yeah. to this and they're like, yeah, but I just want to be safe. And I'm like, well, if you want to be safe, why would you take a substance that may not be regulated and is almost certainly not going to benefit you? All right, Dr. B, hit us with the bottom line summary. Bottom line uh, from our discussion, the things that I would want you to take away would be that there are enormous amounts of uh, observational studies, epidemiologic studies, uh, correlating low blood vitamin D levels with all sorts of scary, bad outcomes, including risks of various diseases and, and death. Um, these studies should not be used 
as evidence that you should be taking vitamin D or that taking vitamin D would prevent uh, uh, or treat or ameliorate any of these disease states or outcomes to include various kinds of infections, heart disease, cancer, things like that. Um, those sorts of uh, decisions need to be made based on more direct evidence that tests that. In other words, if you're concerned about a particular disease state, there should be a specific trial looking at that disease and whether vitamin D supplementation in a ideally randomized and controlled and prospective fashion um, actually has an effect on that condition. There are a few of those that we talked about here, but unfortunately for the majority of outcomes that have been looked at, despite the strong consistent correlations between low blood vitamin D levels and these conditions, fixing that number seems to have trivial to no effect on most of these things. And so all of that is leading us to be not super excited about uh, aggressive testing, screening, and supplementation of vitamin D in most people who don't already have one of these existing risk factors for severe prolonged deficiency, like a malabsorptive disease or something like that. Um, and so the last thing would be, again, to reiterate, if you're going to get into the research or get into arguments about this, I think being clear about what kind of research you're looking at, is it observational, correlational in nature? Is it randomized, controlled, prospective? Where did people start with their vitamin D levels? Where did they end up with their vitamin D levels? And did the outcome that was being studied in this paper actually matter um, for you know things that people would care about in the real world, not some sort of a... Uh, uh, an outcome that nobody cares about except for a, a scientist in a, in a lab who's nerding out on this. Um, so yeah, yep. that's, that's my side. Anything you would add? Just don't take vitamin D <laughs> unless your doctor told you to, because you have one of the conditions that we talked about. And if you are taking vitamin D right now, don't stop taking it because we told you to, but talk to your doctor about it. Assuming that they, you know, prescribed it to you. And if they didn't prescribe it to you, well, you can do whatever you want. You're an autonomous adult. I just, <laughs> I mean, look, there's a reason why you and I aren't taking vitamin D. Correct. Don't you think listeners at home that we want every advantage possible to not only live a long, healthy life, but also be as strong and as jacked as humanly possible. And you think that we would leave gains on the table by not <laughs> optimizing our vitamin D levels. If we thought that that was going to help. I mean, there's a reason why we don't take multivitamins either or fish Correct. oil. Or whatever, you know, it's like, guys, we would do it. We're not telling you to do something that we're doing, you know, behind closed doors. Like, yeah, Austin, you get that, uh, you get that new <laughs> fatty acid I sent you, you know, it's like, come on, man. Yeah. I, I, again, everything that you said, and then also like be very, very critical of the research that you're reading. Um, I am not impressed with correlational data, observational data between vitamin D levels and really anything. That's just more like, of course, it's related. Like, yes, being less healthy tends to be, you know, worse for health. Got it. What I'd be more impressed with seeing is that is data showing that vitamin D supplementation in individuals with a low vitamin D level raises their vitamin D level and then significantly improves outcomes for a particular disease process or performance outcome. And uh, to my knowledge, there are only, there are very, very few health issues that that in fact ha has been demonstrated and no performance outcomes where that has been demonstrated. And so, you know, if you happen to be that person who was arguing with about, you know, vitamin D levels and performance, 
Hope you listen to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's a wrap on episode 152. This is the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by this second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. Uh, if you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you the latest nuance in health and fitness. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you.